Welcome to this episode on the FDA's consumer duty. Today, we'll be exploring dark patterns in user experience design, or UX design for short. This is in the context of the consumer duty guidance requiring firms to account for cognitive and behavioral biases. I'm Connie Faith, an associate in Linklater's financial regulation team in London. And today I'm joined again by my colleague, senior associate Duncan Campbell in the same team. Hello, everyone. On today's episode, we are fortunate enough to once again be joined by London design agency Lighthouse. Dan, would you please introduce yourself and Lighthouse to our listeners? Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I'm Dan Burgess, a senior UX designer at Lighthouse, a specialist UX UI design agency. I've been working in agencies for over 10 years now with a focus on product design, where we balance a user's needs and a business's goals. In this episode, we're going to draw on Dan's expertise to explore what user experience patterns are and then move on to discuss some of the dark patterns that Lighthouse has encountered in practice. Finally, we'll look at how the these various UX patterns should be best utilised by firms in order to meet the SDA's expectations under the duty. But first, it's worth setting the scene. Now, we've already heard from Lighthouse about the key principles of good user experience design, and a link to that podcast episode is in the show notes to this one if you want to catch up. And we've already learned as well about what cognitive and behavioral biases are when we interviewed recently the Behavioral Insights team, otherwise known as the Nudge Unit. And a link to that podcast episode is in the show notes also if you want to know more. But basically, cognitive and behavioral biases are the ways in which people's decisions and behavior deviate from what we would traditionally consider to be rational. Exactly. And cognitive and behavioral biases have featured prominently in the FDA's work since its inception. And the concepts are embedded into the consumer duty. They're important guiding principles for ongoing assessments the duty envisages for firms to make of how customers interact and behave with their products. And the adjustments that the duty envisages firms should make to products design and delivery in order to better deliver good customer outcomes. Now, the FCA says that the duty is not intended to remove consumers' individual responsibility, but it does recognize that cognitive and behavioral biases may compromise individuals' ability to make decisions in their own interests. So the duty requires firms to understand and account for those biases alongside any vulnerability and customers' lack of knowledge or information asymmetries. This is particularly relevant to the duty's cross-cutting rules, actually. Now, the FCA says that a firm that exploits biases would breach cross-cutting rule one, that's the one about acting in good faith, and two, that's the one about avoiding foreseeable harm. Rule two requires more, actually. Firms do need to proactively consider as well how biases might lead to foreseeable harm. And rule three is relevant too. That rule requires firms to enable and support customers to pursue their financial objectives. When it comes to biases, this requires firms to support good decision-making by consumers, both proactively and reactively, by recognizing biases and taking account of them and creating the right environment for customers to make informed decisions. So when it comes to user interface design, it's clearly then important for firms to recognize dark patterns so that they can then stamp them out. Uh, So with that in mind, let's dive in.
Dan, when it comes to UX design or user experience design, what do we mean when we talk about patterns? Yeah, sure. So as humans, we're always looking for patterns. So we arrive at a product with some assumptions already. That helps us find our way through based on our past experiences. Our brains have a tendency to use those past experiences along with our preferences as filters to simplify information we're presented with. These cognitive biases are a sort of coping mechanism that allow us to process the masses of information that the world throws us without losing the plot. When designers use common patterns, they avoid cognitive strain for users. So in simple terms, UX design patterns are widely used repeatable solutions to common problems such as inputting a date, structuring a bunch of content, or separating uh, an application into sections. They're a way we solve the challenge of creating intuitive and easy-to-use applications and visually appealing UI design without having to reinvent the wheel every time. And what are nudges and sludges then? UX designers can use patterns to point users in the right direction through a product or towards taking an action that is likely to be beneficial to them. Knowing how users think and behave is a massive part of a UX designer's remit and one that can be used positively. A couple of examples of positive nudges might be encouraging a user to pick a stronger password or remembering a meeting thanks to a five-minute warning pop-up. These behavioral nudges are all around us in everyday lives too when we think about it. Our oven timer reminds us that we'll need to take the cake out if we don't want to burn it. And the white lines in the middle of the road encourages not to drift across lanes when driving. Appropriately used nudges help people in the digital and offline world. They make the right choice an easy one, lowering the cognitive load in an ethical way. However, there's a flip side to the good and helpful nudge referred to as sludge. So sludge puts friction and obstruction between the user and the desired outcome. This can be unintentional through poor understanding of users' actual goals or rushed product releases or just a lack of knowledge of best practices. Often though, sludge is intentional. Firms can deliberately steer people in the wrong directions. So really when we talk about what's good or helpful versus what's bad or wrong, in this specific context here, it's about whether the relevant pattern is in service of the aim of the consumer duty or detracts from it. And so this would include acting to deliver the four outcomes and complying with the three cross-cutting rules. And Dan, what about when patterns become what people call dark? Yeah, we can use patterns in good faith to support users' needs, wants and goals, or we can use them in an intentionally sludgy way like we just talked about to achieve the goals of the business even if these are at odds with those of users. When designers use their knowledge of human behavior and psychological principles to make or to try to make users take actions that aren't in their best interests, they enter into dark pattern territory. This is a term that was first used by a UX expert called Harry Brignall back in 2010 when he started to call them out. So dark patterns are actually a form of intentional sludge. I'd imagine everyone listening can think of a time they've noticed a product or service exploiting behavior biases, particularly in e-commerce where they're especially rife. Recently, dark patterns have been increasingly attracting scrutiny from regulators in the UK, US and the EU. It's a hot topic that's only going to get hotter, particularly for financial services where the consumer duty sets higher and clearer standards on how firms should be putting their users first. So today I'm going to have a go at breaking dark UX patterns down into some categories, pulling out what they look like in practice and identifying the biases they tap into. I've got five broad categories, and I've tried to order them from least to most dark.
Okay, let's hear about them. First up, tell us about sneaking. Dark patterns in the sneaking bracket are incredibly common. Uh, Sneaking imposes additional goods or services on users with the hope that they won't notice. So this could be like slipping extra items into their basket, revealing an extra cost at the last possible moment, or defaulting to a forced continuity subscription model rather than one-off purchase. This is something that SaaS products love to try and do to keep users around. The default effect cognitive bias means sneaky platforms get away with this one surprisingly often. So that's where people tend to stick with previously made decisions and favor inaction over action. Next up, can you tell us about pressuring? Yeah, some of these might sound familiar. This deal is being held for you, but only as long as the countdown is ticking. If you don't subscribe to this newsletter, you'll be missing out. Or dozens of other people have taken this action, so why aren't you? Design patterns that rush users, shame them, nag them, or otherwise apply pressure to perform a certain action all fall into this category. They appeal to our scarcity bias. This is the fear humans often have that they're missing out, where if we think we might not get access to something, we find ourselves wanting it more. There's also often an element of the bandwagon effect here at play in pressuring patterns. We find ourselves wanting what others appear to have as a way to avoid having to work out what we actually want. So let's hear more about obstructing now. Putting barriers in the way of tasks that users want to accomplish, but that are at odds with the business goals is a common dark pattern. Think about all the times you've come across a product where it's confusing to unsubscribe, close an account, or remove permissions. Platforms where sign up is an incredibly easy self-service flow, but when it comes to canceling your account, require a phone call with a representative who'll try to entice you to stay are also a classic in this area. Brignall named these patterns Roach Motel after a type of bug trap that lures creepy crawlies to walk in and then glues them in place. Products can be less blatant but still obstructive when they introduce click fatigue for flows that are less desirable to the organization but more in line with what users want to do. For example, rejecting cookies can take a ton of fiddling with settings and turning specific ones on or off. It's much easier to just click accept all once. That's the inaction over action part of the default effect again. And how about forcing? Okay, the next level up from patterns that pressure users to take a specific action are dark patterns that require them to take it in exchange for functionality. The use of paywalls on websites that cut the reader off after a few lines is a type of forcing. An example in financial services is where some features of an app are accessible, but others require a subscription payment, often after you've taken some initial setup steps like entering your details. This is sometimes known as forced enrollment. Similarly, a user earning access to the aspects of a product they are interested in by leaving a review, taking a survey, or creating an account which gives away more personal details than they'd initially intended. When we carry on with an action because we've become invested, a cognitive bias known as sunk cost fallacy kicks in. So we've got part of the way, so we may as well see it through, despite not rationally wanting to take the action the platform is forcing upon us. And finally, deceiving. And with this one, many firms might say, well, we don't do this intentionally. And they might think they wouldn't do it unintentionally, so they wouldn't even do it at all. But it's more common than you might think. Yeah, that's right. Um, deceptive designers can employ visual and text elements in dark ways that confuse or disorientate users. 
Often their deception is also rooted in abusing good design patterns to send users down paths they wouldn't have chosen by triggering the framing effect bias. Our brains make decisions based on how options are presented and the positive or negative connotations that seem to be associated with them, even in those if those connotations are in fact totally misleading. So as an example for visual deception, would your eye be drawn to a no thanks in small gray text or a neighboring huge yes please on an eye-catching green button? When two choices which deserve equal footing instead give visual precedence to the one that benefits the product and not the user, there's deception going on. You might hear this called a false hierarchy or just simply misdirection. Text can also be used in an equally underhand way with double negatives like don't uncheck this box if you want to keep receiving emails from us, which you see all the time. Ambiguous wording that leaves users unsure and opt-outs hidden in dense walls of text. There's also subverting patterns. So we all know what clicking an X does, don't we? And when designers use deceptive patterns, they'll subvert our expectation in ways that misdirect users. So to use that example, opening another page instead of their expected action of closing a pop-up. Thanks, Dan. That's been a very instructive walkthrough. And interestingly, the FCA has acknowledged in its guidance on the duty that dark patterns like these might not always be used intentionally. They can instead also arise from a failure to give adequate attention and support to customers when they seek to take an action that does not benefit the firm. So like you said, but unintentional dark patterns should still be addressed if you are to enable and support customers to pursue their financial objectives and also crucially to avoid causing foreseeable harm to customers. So Dan, with this in mind, what are a few examples of the kinds of dark patterns you've encountered, both intentional and unintentional? And have you ever had to assist clients who were seeking to fix one of these unintentional design features? We certainly see unintentional friction where companies have paid less attention to the usability of some elements of their product than others. And it happens that those elements are ones that are valuable to users. Sorting out difficult offboarding where people want to close an account is something we've helped with. I've seen some fairly obstructive tactics here. I'd like to think unintentionally, but certainly there have been some very complicated flows that we've straightened out when it comes to letting users go. Pressuring is another one that we come across. Sometimes we'll work on a platform that is overly noisy with a lot of pop-ups and call to actions everywhere when it comes to us because companies rightly want to make it very easy to take action. But these can be a bit unintentionally dark and push users quite hard. And this also just turns off users if they feel like they're being pressured. We also work with a lot of clients who are very keen to include elements of gamification. I think because it's such an interesting concept and we know it's very effective in some cases. Working with a fitness product, for example, it's very positive to gamify healthy actions. We have to be aware of the appropriateness of gamified features in other industries where there's more chance of harm. It's very easy to use gamification patterns to hook people with daily rewards or checking in or streaks and to make them use the product more frequently than they'd wish to. So in a way that's unhealthy for them. So we try to steer people pull away from that if we can. It's interesting that you mentioned gamification here. The FCA has shown an increasing concern over the last year, in particular in the gamification of trading apps. And last November, the FCA released an article that highlighted certain app design features that it felt might be linked to consumer harm, including things like push notifications with information on financial markets, in-app celebrations when stocks are traded, and also the use of trader leaderboards. What specific challenges do 
you think financial services firms in particular face when designing products in a way that avoids the use of some of these darker design patterns? I think that what you just described there about the trading app as well, like gamification here is has another problem in that it makes it feel like a game. That's the whole point of it. And it makes it feel like not real life. So that's always dangerous when people remove themselves from the actions they're actually taking. I think it's always such a delicate balance between making a platform that's engaging and one that's addictive. I know this is something that a number of financial services firms flag up as a big challenge for them, being very conscious about these gamification elements we've just mentioned and where it's appropriate to use them. Another big consideration is avoiding unintentional deception with the language and wording they use, being exceptionally clear and unambiguous about what action it is users are taking. So obviously, when we're talking about money here and the potential risks involved in actions, the risk is higher than other industries. Being absolutely sure users understand is absolutely vital. This applies to pressure tactics as well, that any element of rushing should really be strongly avoided for the same reasons. Basically, it's important that all products avoid dark patterns if they want to avoid being unethical, but it's especially important for financial services because the stakes are so high. Moving on now to patterns that can be used for good or light UX patterns, if you will. Dan, can you describe for our listeners how some of these light patterns work to achieve good outcomes for customers? Yeah, sure. Having talked so much about dark patterns already, the easiest way to describe light patterns is probably by contrasting them. So if we know that dark patterns work to remove free choice from users, that they encourage negative behavior and that they operate in an insidious way, that is to say that they're like enticing but harmful, we can turn these attributes on their head to describe light patterns. We can say a pattern is light if it is transparent, if the behavior it promotes is positive, and if it promotes the individual agency of a user. So an example of light UX in action I've encountered recently is flipping forcing on its head. So it's so refreshing when you see a user experience journey that front loads all the information about fees and charges before asking the user to invest time and effort in onboarding, or flipping visual deception on its head, giving choices equal prominence within a user interface, or even drawing attention to choices that may benefit the customer or are important for the customer to avoid additional costs. All these things will definitely build trust. That's very interesting. In the FCA's final guidance for the new duty, it noted actually that firms could introduce positive friction to the sales process for complex products and high-risk products. So firms could, for example, slow down how quickly that transactions can be made, perhaps by providing additional information along the way, or another strategy is uh, requiring customers that are using an online service to go watch a video on the risks before they can make a transaction. And in that way, firms could help customers to make a properly informed decision, a reasoned one. And in this way, really nudge practices can help firms to meet the customer support outcome by supporting customers to act in their own interests. Exactly. And actually, the FCA mentioned in its guidance that what amounts to positive friction and an unreasonable barrier will depend on things like the circumstances of the firm, its particular products and who its target customers are. With this in mind, Dan, how can sort of good design principles and thorough customer research feed into what patterns a firm might choose to adopt 
for its customers' benefit. I think it all boils down to getting to know users. I know you spoke to my colleague Tom on a previous episode, and I'd refer back to the things he was talking about, like thoroughly understanding customer goals, the issues that they experience, and how they attempt to solve them. This understanding of the landscape users are familiar with is really important in deploying design patterns. If every other product in a sector of the industry, say investment platforms, for example, uses certain conventions for navigation, or if we find out users are always experiencing problems with filtering data or something like that, it gives us a heads up on where to start. The more we can understand about users, the more we can make sure patterns give them an efficient and satisfying experience. Yeah, that really makes sense. And it feeds into the importance under the consumer duty of firms continuing to monitor and reassess whether a product's design continues to meet the needs of its customers and to make necessary design changes or adjustments. So that's almost all we have time for. So Connie, what would be your key message for firms to bear in mind in relation to UX patterns? I think the main thing to flag here is that using patterns positively and removing dark patterns are both things that are really high on the FCA's watch list when it comes to determining whether firms are appropriately implementing the duty. Another point to flag is that in its final rules on the duty, the FCA noted that it intends to publish research on sludge practices, uh, and that will include potential approaches the FCA may use in its supervisory work to investigate them. So definitely keep an eye out for that. Thank you, Connie. And Dan, many thanks again to you. Do you have any final messages for our listeners? The main point for me is that dark patterns can be subtle and can very easily be unintentional. So companies can't be too vigilant when it comes to checking their acting and users' best interests. All right. Thank you very much, Dan. That wraps up the episode. Do check the show notes for a link to our webpage on the consumer duty with all our insights, including our note on the final rules and our podcast series. And we'll also pop a link in there to Lighthouse. And we're always here to help. So don't hesitate to contact us or anyone else at Linklaters or Lighthouse for that matter if you'd like to discuss further. Thanks very much for listening.